Welcome to the Melt Zone podcast. This is the official episode one of October 5th, 2018. I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And today we are going to talk about the drama that has been happening around the Midwest Rep Rep Festival 2018, 2019. <laughs> we will also be talking about whether a direct or a Bowden 3D printer has advantages or disadvantages. And for the big topic of the week, we both got Flurry thermal cameras and we're going to talk about how we are using them for 3D printing and, you know, what the general experience is like. Perfect. And at last, we will be answering some of your questions that you can send to us via Twitter at The Melt Zone. Perfect, Tom. Please. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, doing good. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. <laughs> that's such an american thing to do the yeah. hey how are you yeah still feeling a little bit nervous but uh the nervousness l nervousness will go away i think eventually yeah just as as we get used to this so yeah official episode one this is it this is going to be the episode that people look back if they want to listen to the entire archives <laughs> good so I think we, we've got a we've got a pretty good topic to start this off with because this is very community centric and something that some of you might not even have been noticing. So, um, Stefan, do, do you know anything about the MRF or MRF drama that's been going on? I have days? well seen some tweets, but I haven't really understood what really is going on there. Okay, you've not been to Merv. Actually, I right? haven't been to Merv, unfortunately. Oh, but you should go. It's it's such a well. It, it used to be. I don't know what the what the coming events are going to be, but it's such a great event. It's just uh, basically some Merv. It's in the middle of nowhere in, in Goshen, Indiana, um, <laughs> Amish country. People from all over the world come together to celebrate 3D printing, to like show what they're working on. It's it's not a trade show. Nobody's really trying to sell you anything. There are companies that are sponsoring it, but it's really just a very casual get together. And so far, it was always, well, I, I again, so disclaimer here, this is just on what I've been uh, hearing on the internet. I, I might get things wrong, but this is like what I've been piecing together. Um, so far, it's always been organized under the the CME CNC company by uh, John Oli and Sonny and Thomas, whose last names I do not know. Um, but just around the time of, of MRF 2018, John Oli, Sonny and Thomas um, left the company, left CME CNC, and it, it wasn't it wasn't really a, a good departure. There was some pretty bad blood as far as I uh, as far as I, I yeah heard about that. So the the well. The MRF 2019 was still kind of up in the air and the official, well, official, historically, uh, the official MRF account was uh, at Midwest RR Fest on Twitter. And I think three days ago now they did tweeted, hey, we're going to announce the uh, the dates and, and you know, uh, sponsorship opportunities and all that for MRF 2019 these next few days or this weekend. And a day later, I believe, all of a sudden, there was this new Twitter account. There was MRF3DPFest, um, at MRF3DPFest on Twitter. There was 3DPFest.com, and they were all of a sudden, you know, going, this is the new Murph. Uh, this is when it's going to happen. You can book sponsorship slots here. And the thing is, it was not 
the old accounts. It was not the old website. It was nothing that, that used to be there. It came out of the blue. Just all of a sudden, there was this entire new ecosystem of, of Eventbrite events, uh, the new 3dpfest.com, and none of it seemed to be attached either to CMECNC or the old team of, of John, Sonny, and Thomas. Um, the only name that was on it was Admin LLC. So it was really fishy. Um, nobody really knew what was going on. And in fact, I think a few hours after that tweet came out announcing all the new dates, um, it was announced by Midwest RFST. Hey guys, like, this is not us. This isn't an official thing that's happening. So at that time, like nobody really knew what, what was going on. And over the coming hours and, and the next day, it kind of became clear that, um, Steve Weigand or Wigand um, of CMECNC, one of the co-founders. So I, I, I believe uh, he and John Oley were the two founders of CMECNC. Um, Steve Weigand set up um, the Admin LLC company that is, I guess, the the organized, well, official hoster of the event, mm-hmm. or however that that works. Uh, the new website 3dpfest.com. You could tell it was pretty hastily put together, and the new Murph 3dp fest. So. It's kind of it was kind of a power move between Steve Weigand and John Oley, um, where Steve Weigand was was just trying to beat John Oley to the finish line, and they did not communicate that they did not communicate that hey they they thought they were now the official ones in charge of Merv, and it's not John Oley Sonia Thomas who left CMC and C, it was. Steve Wigan thought he was the one who was now supposed to put this on. And my light is just cutting out, but we'll just keep on rolling. <laughs> so that's that really seemed weird. And people were asking Steve, like, hey, why are you doing this? Like, what's going on? I I don't understand what what the hell this is all about. And nobody got any any real answers. Um, even asking the MRF 3DP Fest, nobody responded and was like yeah this is steve of cmecnc we are the the organizers even asking hey why isn't john only organizing this they were just like no we're organizing it this this what what's i don't see your problem so i can see both sides like both sides think they should be in charge for murph um but to be honest cmecnc were acting extremely shady about this entire deal and just did not inspire trust that, that they were the right ones to uh, to be in charge for this. And interestingly, interestingly enough, um, I think just 24 hours after the entire thing went down and, and got announced, they actually pulled the entire thing again. So the Eventbrite event, uh, 3dpfest.com, and the account that was first thought was completely fake uh, at MRF3dpfest, that was completely f- nuked. It's gone now. So... Yeah, <laughs> that sounds crazy. But is Murph like a protected name? So could anybody just say, okay, this is this year's Murph, even though it's a community event? And uh, well, I think the commercial aspect is a little bit on the side. Um, I don't know. It's, I, I don't think it's protected in any way. It's even even if it was, the question would be who's really owning that trademark? Who's really owning that name? Uh, somebody mentioned that um, the only the former team, John Oli, Sonny, Thomas, um, were actually contacting Adrian Bauer, who came up with the RepRap name, whether it was okay to use the RepRap name. It's not protected. Like somebody even mentioned on Twitter, like, wouldn't that just be like the logical name to call 
a rep rep festival in the Midwest? Like, <laughs> could it just be a second company that that does the same thing or a second entity that does the same thing? But they were using uh, like photos from the last year's event. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Very, very bad blood going on there. I hope they sort it out. Uh, because I, I really want to go to Merv 2019. It was one of the best events I've ever been to around 3D printing. Uh, and honestly, I don't care who puts it on as long as it's in the spirit of the previous event. Yes. It's always at the beginning of the year, isn't it? It's March. Yeah. March. Like I think the third weekend of March or something, third, fourth weekend. Yeah. So pretty early on, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's kind of bad if these shady things are going on and people are looking forward to that and maybe it gets canceled just because all of that bad blood going on there yeah. and i don't know if well since see me cnc was always like the big organizer of yeah. the event i don't know how it, how it really ends up and i've just checked really the the website is not available anymore and also the i think the twitter account has been closed the twitter account is gone too yes yeah. But I, I think people have, have screenshots and stuff of the, <laughs> of the tweets. Um, now, I, I, I don't blame CNC. Uh, C, I keep trying to say CNC, but see me, CNC. I don't blame them for trying to grab that, that event. Uh, but I do blame them for the way they were communicating the entire thing because they really came out as just being a scam. Mm. Uh, they, they, the new accounts, the at MRF3DPFest and all, didn't have see me, CNC mentioned on them anywhere there was no explanation why this was suddenly moving to new accounts and new websites and new organizers, etc. And even when directly asked, they didn't tell people like what, what was the reasoning for why they were doing that. So that, you know, that is just very bad marketing for them. Yeah. Yeah. We just can hope that everything works out and you can go to Murph 2019. Yeah. Me and, and all the other folks who enjoyed it. It, it was yeah. really a, a great event. I, I would really love to, to have you there as well. I think you, you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, I haven't been at any real big community 3D printing meetups so far. So it would be something really interesting. And I haven't been to the US for like two years and I always enjoy being there. So it would be something really nice. Even yeah. though like March in that region is not, well, like the season you usually would go there for holiday but still it's it's chilly but it's it's well it's the midwest it's never going to be like scaldingly hot in summer <laughs> there's also no snow on the road so you can kind of drive safely it's it's all right you, you bring a jacket and you're good yeah, yeah. well so we're kind of used I, I to guess, that as well i guess if somebody wants to sponsor the trip uh for stefan and and for myself then uh you know drop us an email at at we should set up emails for the for the podcast. Do we, <laughs> just we actually realizing. don't have some, but yeah, just you might figure just, out how you get in contact with us. Send us, us an email at sponsors at <laughs> the melt dot zone. Uh, I'll set up emails before this thing goes live. Perfect, sweet. <laughs> so yeah, again, if if you want to get us there, please please do so. Yeah, really um, interesting summary. Thank you, Tom. Wow, well, yeah, that that took us a while, and it's it's it's. Ah, I, I, I deeply feel for this topic. I'm emotional about this because I want this to be a good event. Yeah. But sweet. Should we should we move on? Yes, I think this would be the plausible thing to do, being already 
10 minutes in. Yeah, 10 minutes per topic, I guess that's going to get us to where we kind of want to be, right? Yes. So the next topic will be um, where we talk about whether direct drive printers or Bowden printers are better, or if you couldn't say they're better, when um, should you use a Bowden system and when should you use a direct drive system? Yeah. So before we even get into that, uh, let's... I guess, clarify which each of those means. So Bowden obviously is when you have your hot end on the carriage moving around or stationary in the bed moving around, however you want to set it up. But you don't have your extruder, the thing that's pushing the filament directly on top of the hot end, but you instead have a Bowden tube, so a PTFE tube um, connecting those two. So typically you have your extruder that is stationary and your hot end that is moving around. So you save some weight. And I'm already getting into the pros i guess sorry and this is the system which probably 90 or 95 percent of all of the chinese printer are using so all your sear tents all your uh tivo printers all your whatever there is uh most of them are using like bowden drive systems which i'm actually surprised they do um because i don't think there's a strong reason but we'll we'll get into that (laughs) in a second um but yeah direct drive systems um the terminology there is is tricky because direct drive can actually mean two things yes do you know the two things yes i i I think you're talking about whether you have a well a gear on the stepper motor which is stepping down the rotation of the stepper motor to a smaller rpm on the feeder gear which is then pushing the um the filament into the hot zone or the hot end um but i think if we are talking about direct drive system we are talking about the geared ones and the ungeared ones um direct just meaning that the feeder system is also directly sitting on the x carriage so the system like the prusa printers are using yeah or basically most classic rep reps i guess that yeah. have um, I don't know if you if you know the the old uh, Greg's Wade's extruders with the big gears, little spot printers. If you look at those, that's what they look like. Or you know anything that has the E3D Titan directly mounted to a mm-hmm. hot end. That that would be a uh, direct drive, but direct drive is is I don't know a direct extruder. Let's just call it that. <laughs> yes. Let's call it direct drive if it's not a geared extruder. Yes. So you have a couple yeah. of printers. I have a couple of printers and you both have direct drive and Bowden systems. Which one yes. do you usually prefer and why? Um, so usually if I if I have a choice, if I w- was building a printer from scratch, I would go with a direct drive system. Um, because I think I, I mentioned this with print time last, uh, in the last episode, um, the direct drive system is not a hard limit you can always print a bit slower and with slower accelerations to kind of uh, compensate for the extra weight that that stepper motor now has on your axis but you cannot compensate for a Bowden struggling with flexibles yeah so I'm, I'm going to prefer the direct whenever I can um, for most users it probably doesn't matter though right <sighs> I don't know you, you can tune a Bowden printer to have kind of the same quality as a direct drive printer. Um, 
it's there are some cases where it really makes a difference and this is printing speed material choice and um, also like problems you're having with the different systems because um, bottom drive systems as you have already been saying before you can have problems with um, the filament skipping just because the friction in the bottom tube is too high um, you can have problems with like flexible filament really kinking in the Bowden tube which also just blocks your um, whole Bowden tube and you're not able to print anymore but uh, the question is why ha why have they be become so popular um, because I also actually prefer the direct drive systems and I think they have lots of advantages over the Bowden printers but if you're taking a look at the printers that I think nowadays 70 80 90 percent are having yeah. at home they are bowden driven and maybe to get that at first bowden systems do have their advantages because um the printhead itself is pretty light which enables you to use way higher accelerations so speed is i think not the problem but acceleration you have to accelerate smaller masses which means um smaller forces that you're needing and also um, you reduce the vibrations. I'm gonna put a massive asterisk behind that. <laughs> Tell because me. Because the way, the, the way printers are, are built is, yeah, you have your x-axis, which you can make a lot lighter by moving the extruder motor off the axis and uh, onto either like your z-axis as the decreality machines do or um, onto just a stationary piece on, on the printer. But you typically still have your bed that is probably as heavy as the entire extruder if not heavier so even if you have a, a very fast and a very quickly accelerating x-axis as soon as you have a, a compound move where both axes need to um, kind of move so anything that is not like a straight line along the x-axis um, you still need to wait for the bed to ramp up so even if you have the, the if you, even if your x-axis by itself could accelerate really fast it it's going to be slowed down by how slowly the bed will need to move Yes, but I think most of the time, at least if I take a look at the settings in my CR10 or something like that, the acceleration settings are the same for the X and the Y axis. Um, and the CR10 has really low accelerations, actually. It has, as a default, really low accelerations. I guess in order to get nice quality, um, even though, well, the kinematics might not be 100% perfect. But yeah, so um, maybe not the force of the stepper motors is the problem because the, the stepper motor is able to move this huge bed of the CR10 with glass and everything. Um, but vibrations, I think if you take a look at ringing marks you find on your models, these are usually caused from kinematics that are not sturdy enough and that cause vibrations during the acceleration and deceleration uh, phases during your print. And so this, the, y, yeah, the, the y-axis is usually right. built quite more sturdy than the x-axis. You're using like wider profiles, wider, uh, wider aluminum extrusions that makes it, um, well, a little bit more sturdy. Um, the x-axis only has like the 20 by 20 millimeter aluminum extrusions. Um, so they are kind of getting away with having this huge print bed but um, still well maybe higher accelerations than standard and um, the x-axis 
is is lighter, but also um, yeah, just there. It's not as sturdy as as the x-axis, so um, it is a good way in between. Um, right. Yeah. Especially if you take into consideration that like the y-axis is typically coupled to whatever surface the printer is standing on, yeah. just through the feet. So there's not any any leverage on yeah. uh, on the machine. There's nothing that could really ring except for. Uh, the, the dynamic system between the belt as a spring and your bed as a mass. Mm. Whereas with the X-axis, you have that entire tower, basically. I, I keep looking at the CO10 behind you. Um, you have that entire towering thing that could yeah. now go into like parallel parallelogram. Yeah. What's that? What's, <laughs> I, 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 th yeah. I feel like I can pronounce some things, but can now rock left to right. Um, and yeah, the the lower your, your dynamic mass is for that, the, the less ringing and, and resonances you're going to get. But this is though, probably one... Yeah. Sorry, continue, though. Yeah. Though, couldn't you just work around those those ringing artifacts by, again, if you have low accelerations, as the CR10, for example, has for both Y and X, as you just mentioned, uh, doesn't that take care of resonances? It somehow does, yeah, definitely. But... Um, this is not well if you're using low accelerations you are not really using the advantages of this bowden driven system because you could print much faster in theory yeah. but i think this is maybe one of the reasons why lots of chinese printers are using uh bowden driven systems because they can get away with like bad kinematics uh not really being not really sturdy uh having play and things like that the print head yeah. is is uh, is lighter, and for this reason, even though everything is not perfect, the prints still look pretty nice. Yeah, and of course, the, this applies to Cartesian machines. This is yeah. pretty specific. What, what we're talking about here, X and Y axes, pretty specific to Cartesian machines. As soon as you look at a delta, which is where I think we first started the the Bowden system kind of um, take off. Pretty much all delta printers are a sort of a Bowden system. Mm. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, for a delta, it really makes sense to have a really light tool head because you have a um, basically your delta arms, depending on where your effector is, have a really strong gearing onto the motor. So mm -hmm. the motor might only move a very small amount while the effector moves a lot. So if the effector is um, is very heavy and has a lot of, of inertia, it's going to multiply that onto one of your motors. So your belt is going to stretch. You have very long belts there. Typically, delta frames, unless you build them with really massive um, columns, are not very sturdy. Like you can, they, they might look good, but if you actually look at, again, that, that gearing issue, you look at how much you can push the effector around mm. without visibly seeing the, the actual tower move. You, you can push that thing around by one or two millimeters easily uh, on most printers. So there it makes, it, it just makes a lot of sense to just be as light as possible and maybe, you know, deal with the issues of a, a Bowden system uh, in software and, and compensate for it in slicing. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I still want to mention about Direct versus Bowden is they, like that the printing performance from the, for them is different on a very uh, basic physical level. So basically the control scheme for how, your extruder movement, your extruder movement um, relates to how much filament is actually coming out of your nozzle. And I think the Ultimaker uses that to um, to great success. Is that? English is hard, man. <laughs> um, 
to, to great effect. That's what I was trying to say. Um, where basically a Bowden works as a constant pressure system. You're trying to use it as a constant pressure. The, the, the goal for a Bowden system is basically to have the extruder turning just as a, at a constant as possible rate. So you have a constant pressure on your, um, on your filament in your hot end. Your filament's just going to be flowing continuously without any steps or any hard start stops. It's just going to be flowing smoothly. Uh, whereas with a direct extruder, you have a very short zone that acts as a spring, basically. Your extruder movements are very directly transferred into what's coming out of the nozzle, or more directly at mm -hmm. least. And that can be good or bad in, in you know, varying ways. For example, on, on some of the direct and direct drive extruders, so the non-geared direct extruders, uh, for example, on the prime line, you sometimes see, or on the first layer as well, you sometimes see just what looks like welds, like those little puddles, puddle, yeah. puddle, puddle, puddle. And I believe that is actually the stepper motor, the, the full steps, just going cluck, cluck, because micro-stepping is never truly perfect. It's going cluck, cluck, cluck. And you can see that in the move on your on your layers. And, and eventually you're going to see that, um, well, you might see it on a print as, as a surface inaccuracy mm -hmm. in extreme cases, which a Bowden will never show. Yeah. But maybe also talking about the Ultimaker, it's pretty interesting um, to see. And I think um, this is also something where uh, Bowden systems really work. Uh, the Ultimaker uses 3 or 2.85 millimeter filament. Yeah. So it, um, the filament path is much, is much more sturdy than the common or now common 1.75 millimeter system. So yes, for the Ultimaker, also... Bowden system work pretty well. Uh, but for like all of the others, which are using smaller diameter filaments, the Bowden path is even more uh, flexible than for the Ultimaker, where it works pretty well. Yeah, um, I, I've not done the math on this, but I don't think the 2.85 versus 1.75 makes that much of a difference, like how springy in cubic millimeters this entire thing is. So because you have your, your 2.85, mm -hmm. yeah, it's sturdier. It is a much more rigid system, but also uh, it moves much more slowly. Mm -hmm. So if you have a spring back of 0.1 millimeters, say, um, that is much more filament in cubic millimeters than what it would be for a 1.75. That's so the spring back yeah. and length might be more. That's a really interesting point. And I think this actually cancels out because the stiffness yep. is like proportional to the area. And also yep. the extruded material is proportional to the area. And yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how, how back pressure within the, the hot end then works and interacts with that. Yeah. But I don't think there's much of a difference. And again with the with the Ultimaker, just the fact that it's a it works as a constant pressure system, I think helps them with the two point eight five as well. Mm -hmm. Where they don't need a super high resolution extruder to mm -hmm. to print really fine details. They just keep smoothly flowing. Um, but also with the kinematics of the Ultimaker, they are really taking advantage of the Bowden system because they use accelerations oh, yeah. during the moves, which are just crazy and which you usually only see on, on Delta printers. And their kinematics is, their, their mechanical guides are puny. They're using six millimeter uh, smooth rods for those cross arms yeah. uh, on the regular Ultimaker 3. It's eight millimeter back and forth. Um, but then the, the, the actual cross is just six millimeters. So you have one six millimeter bar spanning that entire length that then gets to bend from the weight from the dynamic um, forces from mm. the um from the tool head and it works 
Yeah, they. I so. think they're balance, balancing out all of the masses pretty well so that you reduce the amount of vibrations that are happening there. And it works. Um, even though yeah, they are not... Science. science. It works. <laughs> even I though they're not printing that fast. Yeah. Even though they're not printing that fast, um, they still take advantage of the the light extruder hat during all of the movements. Yeah. Yep, so I, I, I so. think as a conclusion, there isn't... It's, it's hard to say whether you should use direct or Bowden. I think we both are fans of the direct drive system, just that it it's, it's way control, easier. Right? It's control, yeah. it's easier to use. It's It works pretty well with flexibles. Um, you don't have that much problem with friction in the Bowden tube and things like these. Um, but there are advantages of the Bowden-driven system and they have become pretty, pretty... Um, like standard due to the flood of Chinese printers. Um, and I think at least during the next couple of months or years, they will not be getting away from that because this has been an established system. Um, but still, yeah, advantages and disadvantages, we will be stuck with it and both are able to print pretty well. Yeah, as as yeah. always, it, it seems like a pretty lame answer, but yeah. both work and both are good for their own reasons. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Tom, you have told me last time that you have purchased one of these Fleur thermal cameras. Oh yeah, shiny, shiny, so nice, <laughs> it's so nice and black. Um, yeah, I got this because you have one. Yes, so well, I purchased. I, I purchased. One. Yeah, you have the better one. Um, <laughs> So I have one of these Fleur 1 third generation thermal cameras since like a good year or so. Um, I'm not like using this one all day or every day, but still it's sometimes a pretty, it's still, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> it's still sometimes a pretty nice tool to do uh, debugging and things like these. And how they are working, I think... Um, in well in difference to the normal FLIR cameras is that you just plug them into your phone the phone is acting as a screen and probably does some some processing, processing and stuff yeah um and it's pretty portable so what have you been doing with it so far and you have the pro version which oh, is yeah, setting version. you back still 500 bucks 400 roughly i don't know what what it's in us dollars but i think i paid like 395 or something for this one okay so when I purchased mine, like oh, when I purchased mine, <laughs> I've been holding into the wrong camera. So when I have, when I had been purchasing mine like a year ago, the uh, third generation standard one was uh, two hundred and fifty bucks, and the pro version was five hundred bucks. The main difference was uh, like the sensor size. I don't really remember how many pixels mine has. I think it has. 128 by 128 pixels and yours is I would, or 64 by 64 i think it's like so it's it's not square um if i remember correctly i think the standard model is 60 by 80 pixels oh yeah and the pro model is i think 160 by 120 or so so has, basically four times the pixel yeah S pixels um so yeah i did get the pro one not because it's the higher resolution but because this one actually goes to 400 degrees Celsius, however many 
degrees Fahrenheit that, that are, but someone is going to comment that below. Many. Um, and this one only goes to like, I think 140. 140, 140, somewhere in that, yeah. yeah. So, so th this one this one also has two modes, so you can switch it between 150 or I think negative 20 to 150 for a high resolution image. And then you can switch it to negative something to 400 degrees Celsius to get a you know a wider range, but you lose um, resolution. Like resolution. Well, you don't lose like pixel resolution, yeah. but you lose thermal resolution. You, you see uh, your temperatures as a much less fine gradient, basically. Mm. Um, what have I been doing with this? Uh, playing around, getting used to it, basically. So my my reasoning for this was I want to 3D printing again, uh, <laughs> which is why we're doing this podcast. I want to have something that I can evaluate. For example, heated beds, how evenly they heat up. Uh, I want to look at electronics and torture test them without having to blow them up. I want to see if your ramps or your, your MOSFET board that you can buy that says, hey, I can, I can do 120 amps. Um, if you should really be using it for 120 amps or the bed outputs and just see what's going to fail without actually uh, physically destroying all my 3D printing hardware. So <laughs> if I if I were just to go through and really test every single MOSFET output on every single board, I would be causing more damage than if I just got this camera. And I think this is going to be way cooler if I have thermal images uh, to, you know, to prove what I was doing instead of having just a bunch of blown up boards. Yeah, but um, so... I think it's it still takes quite uh, quite some experience to do thermal imaging because well I'm a simulation engineer by trade um, you can do pretty pictures with finite element analysis easily oh, yeah. but sure. um, well they don't always well they're not always right and this is the same with thermal imaging because you need to know what you're doing you need to know how the camera itself is working in order to uh, judge whether your results are good or not uh, is for example if you are like thermal imaging a shiny surface you're not really taking the temperature of that shiny surface you are um, well taking a look at the reflection which is probably your wall or something like that and this yeah. takes quite a lot of just knowing what you're doing and thinking about how you can set up your system or set up your tests in order to yeah. get out proper results in the end as Germans, we have a saying that goes something like, wer misst, misst, misst. <laughs> so whoever's measuring stuff is measuring uh, manure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the one thing you have to keep in mind with these cameras, so the, yeah, the, these have actually two lenses in them. Uh, both are cameras. So one of them is just a regular optical camera that gives you like a, a contrast kind of image that it shows you like what you're looking at because the, the thermal camera is pretty low resolution. It overlays the other one. But the other one that actually has a lens that looks black to the human eye, it is still a camera. It is still, you know, it still has a lens in there. It still has optics. It's, it's still a sensor. It just runs at a different wavelength. It runs at, what is it, pretty long wavelengths. So I think like more than a, a thousand nanometers, somewhere yeah. in that range. So the deep, deep infrared. So even if you have like an infrared remote, shine this into the camera it's not going to pick up it is way lower than that so it is literally thermal radiation that it's showing you and yeah as you mentioned um the emissions coefficient uh which is basically is this thing a mirror or is this thing completely matte goes into these well it goes into what this camera is actually showing you so so much and a lot of people just make the mistake as you mentioned they just pointed at something and go oh this is 
this shiny metal object is super cool and then go ahead and go <laughs> you know get their hand welded to it so yeah it, it takes it takes some experience um I've, I've run into this i've coached people on how not to use these cameras to um what is often done is just spray painting the entire thing black mm. just a matte black spray paint it works really well of course you're, you're whatever you're measuring is forever spray painted then um but at least it's giving you a, a good reading for what the surface temperature again that that's also something you have to keep in mind uh of these objects is mm. and there are some other things you can do you can use uh tape or some yep. other things which have like a matte surface which helps you with the measure measurements and um just to be totally clear this is not a problem of these cheap cameras even though if you're buying like multi-thousand uh, dollar thermal cameras they struggle with the same issue so yeah just be aware the exact of that. same exact same principle um in fact if you want to think about these uh kind of on simpler terms this is basically 160 by 120 of those handheld infrared thermometers yeah It's the exact same thermal pile kind of technology in here, just many of them on a sensor and with a lens. Um, so if you have one of those infrared thermometers, you should also keep those same things in mind. Um, for example, what I've been doing just to measure the temperature of a heated bed is just put some electrical tape over it, have a spot, point the um, the infrared thermo thermometer there and measure from that because a glass surface, again, or a bare aluminum surface just doesn't pick up very well. So I think this is, this is gonna be fun. This is really going to be fun. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this or if this has even been made public, but the um, the slice hardened, well, the, the mosquito hardened by slice engineering, um, the one that has the separate um, heat break or, or filament guide and then those four tube studs, I helped them or consulted them in, in making this thing happen. Uh, I've got like, I've had two prototypes. I still have the, the most recent one, which looks pretty pretty similar to what they're selling now and one of the things that, that i pointed them towards was like hey you should maybe take a look with a thermal camera and i i, I kind of told them what what i just was telling you guys like yeah spray paint it measure it have a look at it and the, the results that we're getting were, were really nice and they kind of learned a lot from um just that imaging so if you use it right this is an incredibly powerful tool And it's become and it has been becoming really affordable because like a couple of years ago they were in this resolution thousands and thousands of dollars and now you can just get one plug it into your phone for the um well the cheap one starting at 200 250 yeah. uh, bucks um the pro version like double that um it's cool it's it's a great tool you can feel like predator <laughs> yeah um Though, if as you bring that up, um, so these are fairly low resolution. Yeah, they, they, they are compared to a digital camera, they're nothing. And they're also fairly low refresh rate. So these are nine hertz, so nine frames per second. But both the cheap and the pro model. Yeah, but this is due to export regulations. Yes, it is. Because uh, <laughs> if you would have, and I think they're capable, capable of high refresh rates, If you would have something like that, you could that you could put that into a missile and make yourself a thermal seeking missile. And for yeah. this reason, it's um, it's limited to like nine FPS. Exactly. So we we could have much nicer uh, nice much nicer cameras if people just wouldn't do like stupid stuff with them. Yeah, like <laughs> if people were good, then we could have nicer stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. But nine hertz for for what we're doing is is totally adequate. Yeah. I mean, I, I I still look at this and I'm like, dude, this is so nice. Definitely. And even if you're not using it for 3D printing, you should you can just walk around your house and kind of see. Oh, there's a there's a cold spot. I actually noticed that each corner of of this apartment has like one cold spot in them, which is like this big. <laughs> I don't know if somebody put like a metal plate in there or hit a a safe in the wall or I don't know what's going on. But there's like blue spots if you look at the thermal image that size each corner uh you can look at your windows again those are glass those are reflective so take that with a grain of salt take a look at your windows you can see if one of them is drafty and if there's air leaking in um you can look at your car and check if your brakes are hot or not um you can do all sorts of fun stuff with well i I, I, st I still remember like the first splinter cell game where you were oh, yeah. uh, getting like keypad codes by looking at the keypad after the guard has been putting into the co uh, putting the code in and um depending on the well the temperature of the uh, like the triggers you could say okay the code was this and that and that's this is something you can do with this camera you can yeah. just walk around your house and take a look at your footsteps which are behind you just because the yeah. floor has been warmed up and that's that's so cool you you can you can check if your dog was on the couch and just jumped off when he heard you coming down uh, <laughs> all that sort of stuff yeah um sneaky things very very good stuff uh, are you being paid by flurry to say any of this no, I am actually not paid by them. And when I I'm also not paid by them. And when I bought mine like a year ago, it was working horribly. So the app was just crap. Sorry, yeah. maybe I gotta say not... I'm yeah. Um, yeah. I gotta say I'm, I'm pretty happy with the with the way the app works. I've still not quite figured out whether or how to lock the the scale you get mm. um, because you can lock the. Um, just what point is going to be your maximum, what temperature is going to be your maximum temperature and what's going to be your, your lowest one and just kind of lock that range so it doesn't flutter around. Um, but I've not figured out how to adjust that um, just yet. But it's it's been working pretty good. Sometimes it disconnects. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, it's, it's pretty nice. Yeah, I'm looking really forward to seeing what you, well, come up with, what kind of tests there. Um, it's going to yeah. be pretty pretty interesting for us. Maybe at your new printer reviews coming up. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I can can integrate it there somewhere. Yeah, and I guess there's just one last thing. Fleur is not the only camera making these. Nope. There's also um, Seek Thermal, I think, which is a, has a very comparable product. Um, I think even even a higher resolution one at a lower price than the Pro model. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that's an option, and you you can also get pretty cheap handheld thermal cameras now. Um, from what is it, Unity, Unitrend, which makes like cheap but affordable um, multimeters. What are those called? There's a proper name to it to call this, but they make like measuring equipment and stuff, and they they also make really affordable thermal cameras or just no name stuff. You you can get them in, in pretty much any price range, and it's gonna give you some thermal image. Yes, if that's the entire thing you're after. I've just been checking AliExpress and you're yep. getting thermal cameras like for around a hundred bucks. That's pretty nice. So I'm not I'm not sure what those actually do. I've, I've looked at those two and the way they seem to work is they have they seem to have an infrared camera that then which is not a thermal camera, just an infrared camera and then a single measuring dot in the center. Ah. So they seem to be kind of like fake 
thermal cameras even to a certain amount, but some of them are, are a bit shady, but you can get a, a real thermal camera um, for, yeah, 170 or, or if you go Unity, uh, like 300, 350 or something as a standalone device. Yeah, perfect. So maybe let's get to one of the questions that was sent to us via Twitter from, oh, now I need to pronounce that the proper way, Chacolot. <laughs> hey, Chacolot. Chacolot. Uh, what is the lifespan of filament-based printing as a whole before something better comes along? Um, and we've been talking about that question just uh, briefly before, and you can interpret that in two ways. So probably just start out with uh, your answer to that question. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually starting to realize that this is uh, we've been misreading this actually because there's a third way to read this which is the proper one I think. Uh, I think what what Chuck a lot is asking about is FDM 3D printing as a whole and not as you buy one device and when does that become obsolete? Okay, I was which is what what we've been kind of guessing, but the lifespan of filament based printing, not a filament based printer. So let's actually talk about all those those three were, uh, ways so your your filament based printer when does it wear out when does it become obsolete and when does the technology become obsolete um yeah so you have a couple of printers i don't know i have been running my prusa for a couple of thousand hours and it's still working pretty well you need to do some Same. maintenance uh from time to time like just lubricating the the linear bearings and um, cleaning it off from dust from time to time, but they I do. I happen to have a video on that. Ooh, oh, how come? <laughs> <laughs> Put that into the description. Yeah. Um. So they are pretty reliable, and you should get like a couple of thousand hours out of your printer, depending on the on the quality. They can wear off prematurely um, or not, but I think um, well. You can have them like two, three, th yeah. four thousand hours if you take easily. care easily. easily. Yeah, um, I guess un unless you have like really cheap bearings that start to bind after a while, where the the guides for the for the balls just become worn out and then the balls kind of jam. Um, that is something that has been happening a lot more in the earlier days, I guess, because we didn't have access to like decent quality stuff and also our manufacturing toler tolerances weren't that. Good. So if you have a printer where your bearings, your linear bushings are just not aligned, it, they might run out, but you can replace them. It's not a big deal. Um, but in general, same same for me. My printers have been printing with very little maintenance for, for thousands or tens of thousands of hours, um, especially the pushes, which get used for a fillween. So those have been running a lot. And still, if something is breaking, it's usually just get a replacement part and then you're good again. Yeah. It might be, yeah, eventually the nozzle is going to wear out, though I got to say I've not worn one out yet. Um, if treated properly, if you're not printing an abrasive through a brass nozzle, then <laughs> they will last pretty darn long. Um, maybe the hopped gear is going to, you know, over time, if you have a, a brass or aluminum even one, those are going to just wear down. The tooth profile is not going to be as sharp after a while. Um, but if you have a good hardened steel uh, hop bolt, that's never going to wear out, basically. So, yeah. When does so when when does your when does a printer become obsolete an FDM printer? 
that's that's really hard to say. So I still have my my first three D printer, my Mandel ninety around, which is like four years old, and it's still working well, perfectly well. It's not the fastest one. Um, it still has Marlin one point I think running on it. But still, it works, um, and it's not obsolete yet. Um, I think most of the time, printers get obsolete just because you want to get a new one because it has some nice uh, features like filament runout detection and other things like that. Or if you want to get a bigger one because the parts you want to print now are not big enough for the printer y you used to buy like a couple of years ago. Yeah, and if you look at what today's printers are i mean i, I keep looking at the co10 if you if you keep looking uh, if, if you look at what the affordable printers are that you can buy right now those are not that different from what you were able to buy or build four years ago maybe it's just at the time it would have been a, a nice printer now it's just a standard printer but it's still the same technology it's it, there's there's nothing fundamentally different between those yep. so yeah fdm or FDM printers, I don't think are developing or, or evolving that much anymore because what people are buying is just the cheap stuff that is the basic stuff. Um, if you look at something like the, of course, the, the Mark III, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of new features going in uh, or the Ultimakers or other brands that are really innovating. There's new features coming in, but the base principle of how they work is still pretty much the same. And I think yeah. this brings us to the last point. When does yep. FDM well, FDM printing as a technology become obsolete. Um, and since at the moment, uh, FDM printing is the most affordable, in my opinion, the most reliable mm -hmm. and the most comfortable way to do 3D printing, I think it will uh, last for like many, many more years because at the moment, I think there is nothing uh, on the market, which is comparable in a way that it makes 3D printing as easy as it is with FDM's printers. Yeah. Did you mention that it's the cheapest way to get into 3D printing? Uh, yeah. I think I didn't mention that. Yeah, you you get it's cheap print. You get printer kits for at the moment like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Kits uh, or or less or sometimes. Less. It's it's crazy, and until that doesn't stop or, or until there's no other way to get into 3d printing for that low of an of an entry ticket price or even um you know any other way of manufacturing or fabricating like look at laser cutters those are way more expensive we kind of touched those in the last episode touched on those um laser cutting or cnc'ing or you know it's it's the cheapest way to get into automated fabrication in the first place it's it's the absolute cheapest way to do that um until there's nothing else that can compete with that maybe sla at some point we'll see but then it's still unusable and a mess and smelly and well not unusable but hard to use yeah i think fdm is going to be around for a, a good good while maybe with a few tweaks maybe with better materials i don't know but the base technology i think it's going to be there and in fact fdm is not something new it's been around for 30 years at least now yeah. it was just the first 20 years of its lifetime it was nobody could use it because there was a patent that kept everyone from using it so yeah it's it's been around for a while it's going to be around for a good bit longer i think perfect yeah I, that answers the question right i think that answers the question yes. 
perfectly well. And I think that also concludes today's podcast. Yeah, we're already running long. We are at 53, 52 minutes. Sorry, everyone who was hoping for a shorter podcast, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so thanks everyone for listening um, or watching it on YouTube. Um, the podcast is now not only available on YouTube, it's uh, available on iTunes and in most other other um podcast apps you might have on your phone it's not available on spotify at the moment but um yeah just if you're missing uh a, a well spotify if you're missing a podcatcher app or a podcast app or platform that we're not listed on yet drop us a comment below we'll try to get in there we don't want to tie us into or ourselves into itunes we want to be on as many different platforms as possible so yeah let us know if uh you're you're missing one And if you're having questions for further po podcasts, just tweet us at the Meltzone and we might include them in the next episodes. Yeah, and one last thing that I kind of want to bring up. Our intro music and our logo and our intro video, well, I guess the intro video we can, we can work on. But <laughs> if you're an artist, if you want to compose or, or build on the current intro jingle sting kind of thing that we have in there, or if you want to draw, say, a, a nice logo Uh, based on what we already have let us know we would greatly appreciate that because right now it's it's all placeholders it is just uh, it was me for half an hour doodling <laughs> to to get that logo it looks like yeah it doesn't look nice <laughs> well again trying to keep this this uh yeah. podcast from from needing that explicit flag it does it it looks like yeah stuff that you don't want to look at Please, if you if you want to draw something up, uh, do that. Let us know. Tweet it at us uh, at the Melt Zone. We would And highly appreciate it. Yeah. So And until then, thanks for your time, Tom. And thanks for your time. Hear you in the next one. See you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>